But we'll read Nehemiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 24. And I'll ask you, as all people of God, please give this your careful and reverent attention. This is the true and living word of God. Now, the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem. And the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city. While nine out of ten remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. These are the chiefs of the province who lived in Jerusalem. But in the towns of Judah, everyone lived on his property in their towns. Israel, the priests, the Levites, the temple servants, and the descendants of Solomon's servants. And in Jerusalem lived certain of the sons of Judah and the sons of Benjamin. Of the sons of Judah... Athiah, the son of Uzziah, the son of Zechariah, son of Amariah, son of Shephatiah, son of Mahalalel, of the sons of Perez, and Masiah, the son of Baruch, son of Kolhoza, son of Haziah, son of Adiah, son of Joyorib, son of Zechariah, son of the Shilonite. All the sons of Perez who lived in Jerusalem were 468 valiant men. And these are the sons of Benjamin, Salu, the son of Meshullam, son of Joed, son of Pediah, son of Koliah, son of Masiah, son of Ithiel, son of Jeshahiah, and his brothers, men of valor, 928. Joel, the son of Zitri, was their overseer, and Judah, the son of Hasunah, was second over the city of the priests. Jediah, the son of Joyarib, Jachin, Seriah, the son of Hilkiah, son of Meshullam, son of Zadok, son of Marioth, son of Ahitub, ruler of the house of God. And their brothers who did the work of the house, 822. And Adiah, the son of Jehoram, son of Pelaliah, son of Amzi, son of Zechariah, son of Pashur, son of Malchijah, and his brothers, heads of fathers' houses, 242, and Amashai, the son of Azarel, son of Azai, son of Meshillamoth, son of Immer, and their brothers, mighty men of valor, 128. Their overseer was Zabdiel, the son of Hagdelium, and of the Levites, Shemaiah, the son of Hashub, son of Azrikim, son of Heshabiah, son of Buni, and Shabbatai, and Josabad, and the chiefs of the Levites who were over the outside work of the house of God, and Mataniah, the son of Micah, the son of Zabdi, son of Asaph, who was leader of the praise, who gave thanks, and Bakbukiah, the second among his brothers, and Abda, the son of Shamua, son of Galal, son of Jaduthan, all the Levites in the holy city were 284. The gatekeepers, Akub, Talman, and their brothers who kept watch at the gates were 172. The rest of Israel and of the priests and the Levites were in all the towns of Judah, everyone in his inheritance. But the temple servants lived on Ophel, and Ziha and Gishba were over the temple servants. The overseer of the Levites in Jerusalem was Uzi, the son of Bani, son of Hashabiah, 
son of Mataniah, son of Micah, of the sons of Asaph, the singers, over the work of the house of God. For there was a command from the king concerning them, and a fixed provision for the singers, as every day required. And Pethahiah, the son of Meshezebel, of the sons of Zerah, the son of Judah, was at the king's side in all matters concerning the people. Ascends the reading of God's word. Let's pray and ask his help and blessing as we preach it. Our gracious Father, we ask now for your help, for your blessing on the preaching of your word. We come to this time knowing that there can be no good coming from this work if you do not bless. Lord, all the preparation and all the thought put into this sermon, O Lord, is wasted, O Lord, if you do not come down and anoint these words. And so we pray that we might hear your voice, Lord Jesus, in this ancient text. We might see its great relevance for our lives today. And we pray, O Lord, that we might be encouraged and inspired, O Lord, to pursue reformation not only in our own lives and our families, but also in your church. And then we might look for ways in which you have called us to participate in this great work of reformation. So, Lord, bless this time, we ask again, in Jesus' name. Amen. In one of William Shakespeare's plays, As You Like It, there's this famous line, All the world's a stage, and all the men and women merely players. They have their exits and their entrances, and one man in his time plays many parts. This comes to my mind as I think about this text tonight, because in this text we see the people of Israel playing many parts in this one grand work, if you will, if you could use the metaphor of a stage play. Many actors coming together for this one great performance. The world is God's stage, and all of God's people have this marvelous role to play, whether they be uh, children or aged, whether they be uh, rich or poor, if they are the disciples of Christ, whether they be parents, whether they be children, whether they be uh, pastors, whether they be teachers, whatever they might be, whatever roles you might have, we have this one great master role throughout all of life, and that is to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, to be a follower of the true God in Christ. And everyone has been, excuse me, been given a role to play in the great work of his church, in his kingdom. And what we see in this passage is something very interesting because what we see is the practical outworkings of true reformation in the church of Jesus Christ. And so while this text might be somewhat confusing, somewhat difficult to access when we read it on the surface, once you start to see there's a pattern here, of of ways in which God's people are serving, particular ways God's people are plugging in and engaging and doing works of service, then it makes very good sense what's happening in this text. Just as a reminder, Ezra and Nehemiah, basically one long book, uh, is a book about Reformation. God has given this Old Testament book to teach us principles of Reformation. And I'll refresh your memory on what we have been seeing in these past months as we've gone through this book. As I said, it's an Old Testament manual on the reformation of the church in every age. The principles are timeless principles. You basically see three historical returns of Israelites from Babylon. Remember, they were in captivity for 70 years. 
And at, at the certain time that God prophesied, the people of Israel began to come back, and they came back in waves. And they came back in three major historical waves. And each of those waves, God's people um, reformed Israel in very particular ways. Let me remind you of those ways. The first wave was led by a man named Zerubbabel. And in that wave, the major reformation that was done began where reformation ought to always begin, worship. They rebuilt the temple. They reinstituted sacrificial worship which was to them the gospel proclaimed, the message that blood has been shed for the forgiveness of sins, that God provides a substitute for your sins. That's the gospel for them. That's worship, and that's where they begin. So Zerubbabel leads the people to rebuild the temple, and you see reformation and worship. The second major uh, wave of return is under the, under the priest named Ezra. Ezra comes, and he begins to do what? He begins to teach the people. There's a reformation and instruction, and, and instruction in the law, and how they ought to live as God's people, and particularly in putting off foreign wives of marrying pagan wives, marrying their children off to pagan spouses, and false idolatrous worship and Sabbath breaking. So Ezra comes in and brings in the second great wave of reformation in teaching the law of God to the people. The third great wave of reformation is under this great man, Nehemiah, this somewhat civil leader. He's like a, almost like an Old Testament judge who comes in and, and begins to, to rule like a king over Israel, over Jerusalem rather. And his major contribution is to lead the people to rebuild what? You can remember, kids. He, he leads them to rebuild the walls of the city. They're in ruins. Um, that's their literal protective measures to keep out uh, pagan influences from the city, and particularly from pagan uh, influences spiritually. So the walls were be rebuilt. The gates which were burned down were rebuilt and, and set up again. And we see in this particular aspect of Reformation the structures of leadership pictured in the walls, the structures of leadership which help to guide and direct and even discipline the people of God when necessary. So you see these three waves, stages, if you will, of Reformation. And now what we've seen after chapter 10, the people cry out and repent of their sins again. And they say, Lord, forgive us for all of our bad behavior. Forgive us for our Sabbath breaking. Forgive us for, for forsaking your feast days. Forgive us for our intermarrying with these pagan women. Forgive us for not loving you, Lord. We have, we have blown it. And they repent of their sins. And now, in chapter 11, they recommit to these faithful activities, faithful works. And now, chapter 11, what do we see? The practical outworking of their repentance. The practical outworking of their reformation. And so, this is the big picture. This is how I want you to see this text today. And that's the, that's the lens in which I want you to view it. This is the practical working out of what true reformation looks like and what it looks like is a change of culture god desires to change the cultures of our church to look more and more like his will for our lives and he does that in very very simple but very profound ways look at verse 39 of chapter 10 the last commitment they made in their covenant renewal we will not forsake the house of god and this is how they work this out. Chapter 11. 
So what I want you to see is reformation does not simply entail a change of mind and doctrine. That is certainly true, and it begins there. It begins in changing um, our, our thoughts about God, changing our views about, about reforming our views of, of life and who God is and how worship should be and how, how society should be. And it begins with those notions going back to the Bible. But it doesn't stop there. It begins to work itself out in everyday practical ways. And that's what we're seeing here. So I want you to see three things that Reformation in Israel is now clearly seen in a multitude of aspects in the ways now the Jews are embracing their role on God's stage. They're now embracing their role in this time of their lives as they serve God. So we're going to see three things that, and this is going to continue on, but we're going to see three ways that they participated in the Reformation work of God. We're going to see those who dwelled in the city of, of, of the Lord, Jerusalem, serving in three ways. Sacrificial service, valiant service, or you could say courageous service, and third, orderly service. We're going to see sacrificial service, courageous service, and orderly service. So let's look together at this passage. We're looking at verses 1 through 24, and this section is describing those who return to live in the city as opposed to those who stayed in their villages. Now, you might not think it, but that was a big deal in this age. We're going to get to that in just a moment. But in verses 1 through 24, we see the structure set up. Verses 1 through 9, you have the sons of Judah and the sons of Benjamin. And then in verses 10 through 24, you see the priests and the Levites. So you see these two sets side by side. So Judah and Benjamin, priests and Levites. Um, and it's very neatly, neatly ordered that way. And one of the ways that you come to see main ideas in texts like these is repetition. When you get to these genealogies, you go, what do I make of this? Look for, look for ideas or words that are repeated. You heard those words, valiant men, men of valor. They have a, a, a repetition there. Or themes that continue on, things like that. So let's look for those patterns here. It's kind of a fun detective work when you get into the meat of the text. It's, it's exegetical work. But it's common sense as well. It's not hard to do. You just have to read carefully. So first thing we see, verses 1 through 3, sacrificial service on the, on the part of these people. It says, now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem. And just pause right there. Now he's describing here that the people who lived in Jerusalem were primarily those who were in the ruling class. They were the leaders, the priests, the Levites primarily. But they weren't the only ones. Clearly, the text tells us that most of the people in Israel did not want to live in Jerusalem. It was not preferable to them. They would prefer to live where? They would prefer to live on their lands, on their inherited lands, the lands that they had been given, their ancestral lands that were allotted to them throughout generations. They would rather live there. Chapter 7 of Nehemiah tells us that many of the homes were broken down and had not been rebuilt yet. There's a lot of work to do in Jerusalem. It was tight. It was crowded even then. And besides that, they weren't able to enjoy the produce of their land as they would have been if they were living on their land. It's kind of like the founding fathers of our country. You remember George Washington. They wanted to make him president for a third term. They wanted to make him a king. What did George Washington say? You guys kidding me? This is a necessary evil. I don't want to be president. I want to go back to Mount Vernon. I want to, I want to uh, grow some corn. 
Oh, for more of those kinds of men in our leadership today. Amen. But um, that's, the, that's the heart of these people. They say, we're not really interested in living in Jerusalem. We want to live in our lands. We want to grow our crops. We want to, we want to live peaceable lives. It's, it's difficult to live in the city. To live in the city in this age was a sacrifice for them. The leaders set the example by being the first to commit. But notice what happens. And the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in other towns. Just to bring the idea home, look all the way down in verse 20. It says, And the rest of Israel and of the priests and the Levites were in the towns of Judah, everyone in his inheritance. That was the desire. But the sacrifice, the thing that was, that was good for the community, the thing that would be a blessing to the Old Testament church was to go and to populate, to repopulate this abandoned and ruined and run-down old city. You might think of it in modern-day terms for a, a little struggling church where God's people say, I want to go and I want to repopulate that church. I want to go and, 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 and support that work. That's actually happened in our church. It's been a great blessing to us. People say, this is a little mission work. I want to go and help this church and encourage this body. That's what they're saying. I want to go into that church. I want to help it reform. We want to go and repopulate it and give it our full effort and energy. It was a sacrifice. And I want you to see how this text describes it. They're like a people who become a living tithe. I want you to notice there's a very interesting connection from chapter 10. If you go back to chapter 10, one of the final things that the people committed to or recommitted to doing was to tithe to God. They had been not tithing to God. They had not been giving their first and best to the Lord. But now what you see is the people, one out of ten, it's very interesting, nine out of ten stay at their homes. One out of ten, a tithe, a tenth, go into the city. They're like a living tithe. I touched on this in my sermon last week about how really the tithe expands to all of our lives. It's giving the first and best of everything, our time, not just our monies, but our time, our energy, our our, our gifts. The people said, I want to give my first and I want to give my best of my whole life. And so they give give their time and their energy and indeed their very very person to God in the city. So they cast lots to do this. And there's an interesting parallel. If you go back to Joshua 14, when God gave the people the land of Canaan, the people cast lots to see who would inherit what parts of the land. Now they're casting lots to see who won't live on the land. It's, you're seeing development. You're seeing growth in the people of Israel. Maturity. This is true reformation. They're seeing that the blessing is not in the land. The blessing is in serving Christ and however he's called us to serve. The great blessing is following Jesus, no matter what. So what you're seeing here is sacrificial service that is real and practical. They deny themselves things that are comfortable and convenient. Think about our conflicts in life. Think about the things that frustrate us. Aren't they, aren't they generally like, this isn't comfortable for me, this isn't convenient for me, and it's a little scary. And we say, I'm not doing that. But what if God tells you to do that? What if God calls you to that? It's a sacrifice. We serve a great God who's worthy and who's able to sustain you in those things, indeed to bless you in the midst of those sacrifices. And so we sacrifice our lives. Why? Because 
He owns it all anyway. We are His, fully, holy, 100% in totality. We belong to Him. And so our lives are to be a living sacrifice. I want to touch on that idea in one, in one moment. But look at verse 2. And all the people, these are the people that didn't go to Jerusalem, and all the people who willingly, and they people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. So they're like, you guys, you know, praise the Lord for you. You're, you're doing a good thing. The, the language that's used here, willingly offered, is a word in the Hebrew that describes the free will offerings. It's a, it's a very subtle but very real connection. In other words, they are the proverbial living sacrifice. The wonderful New Testament parallel to this is in chapter 12 of Romans. You know this well. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by the testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is not the way of the world. The way of the world says pursue what's convenient, pursue what's comfortable, pursue riches, pursue earthly goods, pursue prosperity, pursue all the things that please our flesh. But the Word of God calls us to pursue Christ, to pursue God, to fear God and to serve Him in love. That's the true way of life. That's the true way of joy. It's by denying ourselves and following Him, we find what life is really meant to be. How does this play out? Just a little application for us. I believe God's calling every single one of us to participate in the reformation work that He's doing in His church and in the world. This looks looks different ways for different people. But think of individually. He's called us to maturity, growth, and reformation personally, to be more and more like Christ. We put off uh, earthly pleasures to serve God and to serve others. Very practically, what does this look like? Well, children, young people, when your parents ask you to do something that's not convenient, that's not fun, and you grumble... It doesn't honor the Lord. God calls you to deny yourself and to serve God by honoring your mother and father, right? This is also very good counsel for us parents when we are tired and we are hungry and at the end of a long day of work and there are discipline matters to be attended to, dads, or there are chores that need to be done, there's trash that needs to be taken out, Or there's some other menial task that is inconvenient and not very fun at the moment. And what do we do? We grumble and we complain. God calls us. Jesus, your Savior, calls you to deny yourself and to honor your God and to serve your family, to love your wives, to love your children, to not rage, not complain, not grumble, but to honor Him and serve and love. Deny yourself calls pastors and elders to deny themselves when difficult conversations need to be had or difficult meetings or difficult decisions that are are going to be unpopular or to preach sermons that you know will not be received 
very well, but to do it in love for God's people, but more importantly for God's glory, to sacrifice and deny your flesh. So these are very practical ways as individuals. What does it mean for churches? Again, for churches to pursue godliness according to the word of God, not according to what the culture demands of us. Satan, as we know very well, wants our church to look more like the world and to do those things that please the world and to say those things, more importantly, to say those things or perhaps even more to the point, to not say those things that please the world. Keep your mouth closed about those things. God says no. We need to deny ourselves the comfort, the applause of man, the smiles of man, and not worry about those frowns. And we need to speak the truth in love. So brothers and sisters, there's a million and one ways. I could say to dads, dads, deny yourself. When you're tired, when you're, when you're worn out, still do family worship. In the morning when you get up and you're worried, um, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm tired in the morning. Spend time with the Lord every day. There are a multitude of ways this plays out, but basically it is this, that we are called to follow Jesus in denying ourselves and taking up our cross. And there we find joy, and there we find great grace and peace. So that's our first, first major point in this text, that, that the people of God play their roles well here at this time in, in Jerusalem's history, and they, they sacrificially serve when it's, when it's a bit challenging. Now, look with me here at the verses 4 through 6. There's another pattern that you see here. You heard me say three times this word valiant or valor. It's the same word in the Hebrew language. Um, These described as valiant are from the three tribes represented, the sons of Judah, the sons of Benjamin, and the sons of Levi. Verse 6, verse 8, and verse 14. All three of those tribes, those men are described as valiant men. Or a, a, a large portion of those men are described as valiant men. What does that word valiant mean, by the way, in the Hebrew? This is a word that does not merely mean physical or military power. This is a word that has a connotation of moral virtue. These are men who are powerful not merely as as fighters, but as men who fight for good. They are good men with exceeding power. In fact, the the language is elaborated on in verses 8 and 14 as not just valiant men, Mighty men of valor. Young men, this is a good model for you, for all of us, all of us men. God calls us to be valiant men. This is an ideal. We're not always valiant. But he calls us to that. What are they? This word mighty, by the way, is the same word that describes David's mighty men. Remember those guys? Those guys that like slay giants and kill lions and all kinds of crazy stuff like that. These mighty men of David, these awesome like Navy SEALs of the Old, Old Testament days. Um, it's also the same word you see in Isaiah chapter 9 describing God. Remember mighty God? Prince of Peace. Mighty God. El Gibor. Warrior God. That's, that's what that literally means. This is warriors. Warriors, valiant, righteous warrior men. Okay? Men, you're fired up, right? This is, this is good, good, good uh, message tonight. Um, what are these men? These are men who are described as those who are being willing to fight for righteousness' sake, 
willing to fight for truth's sake, willing to fight for the name of God. Think of this wonderful illustration of this in in David himself. The man of God who stood against Goliath, this blaspheming, this wicked, this vile Philistine who defied the armies of the living God, who blasphemed God's name. And David said, you know what? I'm not going to put up with that. We're not going to tolerate that kind of talk. No one's going to stand up to him. I'm going to stand up to him. That's not right. And David stood against Goliath and fought him in the name of the Lord and had a victory by the power of the Lord, and he glorified the God of Israel on that day. These are men with that same spirit and that same heart. These are men who are willing to fight and defend this holy city. This is God's city. This is God's church. This is God's kingdom. And you know what? By God's grace, we're going to stand and defend her. Not that the strength is in us. The strength is in the Lord. But they are going to stand and be used of God to do so. So these are the warrior servants of God. So they serve the Lord in this particular way. And I want to point out that this is something that has been, this has been done in the past in Israel for all times. Go back to Nehemiah 7. Nehemiah himself told the people to do this. Do you guard the city? This is the temple, folks. This is the place where God's glory dwells. This is is the ground zero of God's activity on earth. This is the most holy place on the whole earth. You guard this city. So Nehemiah 7, uh, look with me, verse 1. Just a few pages back. Now, this is Nehemiah. Now, when the wall had been built and and I set up the doors and the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites had been appointed... I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors, appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard post and some in front of their own homes. And the city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt." There he said, folks, I want you to guard your houses, guard the city, guard the gates. Guard Jerusalem. By the way, this goes all the way back to Numbers 18. I won't read it for time's sake. Numbers 18, 1 through 6, you see God's command to the priests to take swords and guard the temple. So we don't often think of it this way, but many of the priests actually were were like um, security for the temple. Nothing unclean may enter here. Nothing unholy may enter here. This is God's holy space. You protect it at all costs. We'll come back to that idea in a moment. Verse 19, we see another, another sign that they were, they were guarding the city, but they were gatekeepers who are, who are officially uh, appointed to, to watch over who comes in and who goes out of the gates. The gatekeepers were very important. Verse 19, the gatekeepers, Akub, Talman, and their brothers who kept watch at the gates were 172. They ensured that there would be no one who would come in unauthorized to do the city harm. Now, theologically, this idea is an ancient one. The very first man, Adam, what did God task him with? You guard this garden. You watch this sanctuary. This is God's sanctuary where he wanted to dwell with man in peace and holiness and righteousness. What did Adam do? 
He let the serpent slip by. He let the devil slip in. He should have, he should have kept Satan out, but he allowed the devil to defile the sanctuary of God, and in doing so, he brought great harm, indeed, the ultimate harm upon human race. Thankfully, Christ was the only one who indeed did reverse that terrible act. But just as Adam was called to guard the garden, so too the priests were called, like new Adams, as it were, to guard the holy sanctuary from all that would enter in to defile it, to twist and distort and corrupt God's holy worship. Let me tell you, today, Satan is still trying to infiltrate the church of Jesus Christ and to corrupt her worship. And God has called elders, first and foremost, to be gatekeepers, to be gatekeepers in the house of God, to ensure, to watch over, to be overseers, and to protect God's people, and to forbid anyone who would come in with strange doctrines or strange novel practices that are not authorized in the Word of God, and to call them to repent or to remove themselves. Because this is God's house, and it is God who dictates how we live and how we worship in His house. And so here God has called His church to be gatekeepers, particularly the leaders of the church, but men, fathers, be gatekeepers in your own home, to be guarding over your flock, your little flock. If you see sin in your house, to address it. Don't turn a blind eye to that. Don't pretend that you don't see it just because it's going to be a hard conversation, just because someone might get mad at you, your child might be angry with you. If you see sin, address that sin. Do not let it uh, creep in. Be careful of, of what is happening in your home. Know what's happening in your home. Know what people are, are, are engaging with in your home. Know what's being read. Know what's being watched. We need to be very careful to protect our families, our little flocks. And first and foremost, brothers and sisters, we need to guard the gates of our own hearts. What are you watching? What are you putting your eyes upon? What are you listening to? What are you reading? What kind of thoughts are you allowing into your mind to dwell there? Brothers and sisters, if it's unholy, if it's unclean, repent. God calls us to holiness. Thankfully, we have a Savior who forgives us, amen, who loves us, who will, who will freely wash and cleanse us from all sin. But we need to guard our hearts from, from it are the springs of life. So here we see another way in which God has called His people to live and to engage in reformation in the church, to guard and protect as valiant and courageous men to speak the truth in love. Okay, so we see that. So we've seen uh, sacrificial service in Jerusalem. We've seen... Um, Courageous service. And now thirdly, what we see in, in Israel are, is orderly, orderly service. Verses 7 through 24. Now I want you to notice here the third major uh, pattern that we see in this text. What you probably noticed is you see a multitude of ways that leadership is described in this text. A multitude of names for leaders. And a multitude of instances in which people have leadership roles and which people uh, willingly take on. So beginning in verse 7, we see here this concerted effort on the part of the Jerusalem inhabitants to organize and structure their leadership in an orderly manner. Verse 7, the sons of Benjamin. says, amongst the sons of Benjamin was a man named Joel, verse 9, the son of Zetri. They call him an overseer. And Judah, the son of Hasunoah, was second over the city. What you see here, you see this pattern again repeated in this text. It happens again. 
um, a little later in the verse, in the passage rather, um, you see a man who's the overseer of this, of this tribe. He's the, he's, the, um, um, he's a designated leader amongst the tribe of Benjamin. And there is another gentleman underneath him who is second in command. Okay? Um, leadership is clearly being reformed in Jerusalem at this time. This is necessity. Why? Nehemiah is not going to be around much longer. Guess what? Uh, the king of Persia is saying, I need my buddy back. I need my guy right here next to me at the throne. I need Nehemiah back. I've given you long enough. You built the walls. Come on back. So Nehemiah is about to be leaving. He's going away for a while. He'll be coming back, but he's going for a time away. There needs to be a structure of leadership in place, both in ceremonial aspects and civil aspects. There cannot be a better example of leadership than Nehemiah. Nehemiah is one of the best models of Christian leadership you can see in the Holy Scriptures. He was a man who who modeled um, godliness, prayerfulness, practical uh, hard work, courage, and leadership. He was a great leader, an outstanding leader. And uh, I might say he was also somewhat Presbyterian, if I might say so, because he arranged everything in this good and decent order that Presbyterians loved. Uh, We'll see that in just a moment. Uh, But notice here, there are many references to to leaders' roles. Chief, head, leader, overseer. And this word overseer is fascinating. In the Greek version of the Old Testament, the the Hebrew word pakid, it is the same word that we find in the New Testament that's used uh, for bishop, episkopos. You might say that Joel was the bishop of the tribe of Benjamin. Um, that, that word is used three times here. It's describing also Zabdiel, the overseer of the priest. Uzi, who's the overseer of the Levites. And of course here, verse 9, Joel, the overseer of the Benjamin Benjamites. So what we're seeing is a man who takes on sort of a, a spiritual role of, of oversight, and spiritual oversight over the people, like a pastor. We see orderliness in the priesthood. It says in verses 10 through 14, the priests were God's ordained mediators between Israel and Yahweh. They represented both to each party. They each had their own, quote, ruler. And they ruled over their brothers who did the work of the house. So the priests were the one who attended directly to the ceremonial ministry. The Levites, as we'll see, were the ones who attended to the work outside the house. So they were subordinate to the priests. They, they functioned in a supporting role at the temple. All of this to say there's an elaborate structure, an orderly structure of leadership, and there's a clearly designated um, attempt to show who is in charge, who's ruling, who has responsibility. And it all tends to a very orderly, um, decent way of life. Just look at the Levites as well, and then we'll move on. But verse 16, it says, The Levites, they have their chiefs, who rule over those who work outside the house of God. Mataniah, verse 17, was leader of the praise. He was the leader of those who sang and give thanks amongst the priests. And then you have this reference to Bakbukia. That's a wonderful name. I love that name. Bakbukia, who is second among the brothers. So all through this passage at the end, you see this, again, the main idea is this, this very careful uh, description of the The orderly structure of leadership. What's the point of all this, Pastor? This is boring. No, it's not boring. What you're seeing is God's will for his church. 
that we serve in a good and decent manner, that we serve in an orderly way, in a way that order, see, order keeps peace. Order gives, gives a, a path for peace to exist. And it's very, very useful. And God has called his church to an orderly form of government. You probably know where I'm going with this. But I want to show you one more example. Verse 24, there's one more leadership role that deserves special mention. And I would love to make much of this, but I'm not prepared to do it tonight. But I just want to read it and share it. But verse 24, a man named Pethahiah. Pethahiah, the son of Meshezebel, of the sons of Zerah. It says, this man was at the king's side in all matters concerning the people. Now, this is fascinating because who is the king here? This is the king of Persia. That's who ruled over Jerusalem at this time. This man was a liaison between the Israelites and the king of Persia. He sat in their courts and he represented the Jewish people to the king. I can't help but wonder if there's a greater picture here. A man who's attending to the people of God in the, in the very throne, at the very throne of God. But I'll leave that for now. But I want you to note here that you see leadership emphasized greatly here. God calls for his church to have a representative form of government. This has always been the case. God has always called for a representative form of government, and it lends to decency and good order in the way we run the affairs in the church. Whatever you might call it, Presbyterianism, federalism, or whatever it is, it is a representative form of government by which the people are served by those who are brought, are, 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 are chosen and put over them by God. And they are from among the people. We see this now today in the, in, the, in the New Testament as a plurality of elders who in chapter 20 of Acts are synonymous with bishops, episkopos. We see a plurality of elders are required by God over every church, Titus chapter 1. And we see that these, these elders are not merely CEOs. They're not men who just sit and make decisions. They're men who are pastors. They're shepherds. They're in the lives of their people. They know their people. And they are willing to care for them and pray for them and pray with them and instruct them and counsel them. And if needs to, to discipline them in love in the Lord. But God's, God's church has always been ruled in this way. It's been ruled decently in good order by a plurality of elders who are called by God. And we see this here. This is a principle of orderly service, and God has called his church to that. So brothers and sisters, we can look at this command of orderliness not only in the church, but I would also at the very end here say that God requires it of us in our families, that we need to pray for orderliness in our families where we see disorder, that we would prayerfully approach and, and, and deal with those things. Where we see sin, we would, we would lovingly pastor and shepherd our families and ourselves primarily. Good and decent, orderly lives. God calls his people to order, not chaos. Moderation, brothers and sisters, in food and drink. Moderation in screen time. Ouch. Moderation in internet usage. And this isn't even beginning to touch the content of what we look at. Putting away all of those things which are unhelpful, unedifying, unclean, and unholy. Forsaking our idols. But moderate, orderly, um, self-controlled, 
use of our time and, and, and our energies. Brothers and sisters, as we look at this model of service in Jerusalem, as we, as we see the ideal that God presents here for his church of Jesus Christ, we recognize that none of us, none of us have attained to this. We all fail in this. If we are players on God's stage, we have all forgotten our lines. We have all fallen on our face on the stage and embarrassed ourselves many times. We have not been faithful as we ought. But the good news is this. We've got a Savior who forgives us. We have a Savior who loves to give us grace and who loves to encourage us and strengthen us so that we will be servants who are sacrificial who, who become sacrificial, who are uh, valiant and courageous for truth and for righteousness and are people who live orderly and decent, upright, self-controlled lives. Brothers and sisters, this is only possible in Christ. Apart from Christ, we will go to what our natures desire. But in Christ, he transforms and renews our nature to become more and more like his. And brothers and sisters, can we also pray for the church Pray for the church in this day and age when Satan is seeking to infiltrate, just like he did in the garden, to upset, to hinder, to corrupt and defile the house of God. May the Lord raise up a new generation, our young people, uh, to be sacrificial, courageous, and well-ordered people of God for his glory. And he will do it. That's the good news. He will do it. That's his will. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture. We thank you for these passages that we would sometimes not spend a lot of time on or dwell on as they are challenging. But we thank you for the opportunity to do so and to dig into this passage and to dig out these gems. And we thank you, O Lord, for it. We pray, Lord, for this very passage's message to be true in our own lives, that we would become more and more like our Savior denying ourselves for righteousness' sake, for your will, to be courageous by your grace and speak truth and to stand against evil and to be a people who are known and marked by order and peace. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this will of yours for our lives and we pray that you would make it more and more so. We pray that we would trust you, Lord. There may be any here tonight, O oh Lord, that do not know you. I pray, Lord, that you would bless them and grant them saving grace. And we thank you, O oh Lord, for the promise of glory in heaven, that we will one day dwell in your sanctuary. There will never be another unclean thing, unholy thing there again. And there we will dwell with you forever. And we long for that day. So we pray, come, Lord Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.